Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. This morning, we are beginning a new sermon series, one that I am eager to be in, that I'm excited about. It's been on my heart and my mind, actually. I feel like God has been putting it on for a couple of years. And so here we find ourselves jumping into a series that we're calling Asking for a Friend, Honest Questions for God. And, and we ask for a friend, right, quote unquote, we ask for a friend when the question is really ours, don't we? Often it's ours, but the question makes us feel a little embarrassed or ashamed, and so that's the nature of some of the questions that we'll, we'll be walking into this series. Maybe you've been in a relationship with the Lord for quite a while, you've been faith-filled, and yet there are still questions that you've not been able to answer. Maybe you've just tried to avoid them because they seem to crop up and you're not sure what to do with them, and so we hope to jump into them because you haven't been able to satisfactorily resolve them. Perhaps you aren't a, a follower of Jesus. Perhaps you're not a person that you would identify as a person of faith, and actually it's the honest questions that you have carried for so many years that have not been reconciled that have caused you not to have a relationship with God. That there have been these impediments, these barriers, these challenges that you have not been able to overcome, and so having faith just seems like too much. We can also ask for a friend when the questions are genuinely for a friend. And so you may have had conversations with family or friends throughout the years, and they're questions of faith and spirituality and questions that keep coming up over and over and you're not exactly sure how to respond to them. And so we hope again to provide some responses to these questions or at least some of them that are thoughtful that we hope that you'll find helpful. But I'm going to acknowledge up front that we may not be able to completely neatly button these questions up and give you an entirely and completely satisfactory answer. But we do hope that this will be a springboard, an opportunity, an invitation to engage these questions honestly, to move into them more intentionally, more deeply, provide the opportunity for exploration, for discovery, for learning, for discussion and conversation, and equip you well to engage those. So that's our hope. And to do it together in an environment where there's not the guilt, there's not the embarrassment, there's not the shame for having the questions in the first place. And so I'm going to ask for you to consider who you could invite to be on this journey with you, who might appreciate an honest exploration of honest questions that are challenging to deal with. As I was thinking about the, the first questions in this series, I was reminded actually of a movie, Nacho Libre, which I'm sure is many of your favorite movie starring Jack Black. By the look on your face, many of you have never even heard of it. <laughs> and that's okay. I like it, but I'm just going to warn you if you go watch it, it is totally ridiculous. The premise of, of the movie is that Ignacio, or as he goes by Nacho, works in an orphanage that is connected to a monastery, and he loves the orphans deeply, but times are hard. And, and at the same time, he dreams about being a luchador, 
you know, one of the Mexican wrestlers that wears those masks on his head, and, and he realizes that perhaps being a luchador, he can earn some money to help the orphans. And so he gets a partner named Steven, actually, whose wrestling name is Esqueleto, the skeleton, right? Because he's scrawny. And the two of them start wrestling, and they're terrible. But here's the thing, even the losers get paid a consolation prize, and this has been enough so that he can buy chips and vegetables to go along with the everyday gruel that they've served at the orphanage, and so he's inspired to continue to try to get better, to try to be able to do more, and along the way, the conversation comes up, and Stephen and Nacho have a disagreement. They have an argument over the fact that Stephen has not been baptized, and this is, I mean, Nacho can't even believe this. And in the course of their conversation, Stephen pushes back on Nacho and says, I I don't know why you always have to be judging me because I only believe in science. And it's really a hilarious scene and a sequence of events, and yet it sets up the questions that we're looking at today so perfectly because I think often in our world today that we feel like there's this dichotomy that you can either believe in science or faith, that it's one or the other. You have to choose sides. That's certainly how it's expressed in this movie. And many wonder, I believe, who are outside of the faith, outside of Christianity for sure, they they wonder, isn't faith irrational? Because hasn't science disproven Christianity, if we're honest? I mean, this question comes from their experience that some have had. Or, Or a belief that to be a part of a faith system, you have to actually abandon your mind. You have to check your mind at the door, ignore the hard questions, and just believe. Accept whatever you're told as the truth and just believe it. And I know lots and lots of people find that approach to life completely and totally unacceptable, and I don't blame them. It's a barrier to faith, and if that's what's required, then many are going to choose science because they're going to choose logic, they're going to choose reasoning, they're going to choose rational thought, they're going to choose a way of life that can be grounded on what they can explore, on what they can know, and that they can ask their honest questions and at least seek real answers. And so as we dive in today, we want to ask ourselves, is that what's really required? Does faith really require us to suspend our thinking and just believe, or is there a space in faith for honest questions, rational and logical thinking, using your mind to seek answers to difficult questions? Or do you just have to believe? So we're going to jump into Acts chapter 17, and we're going to see how Paul interacts with a world that is not convinced of his perspective and his view, and so you can follow along on the screen as we like, as we dive into these questions about the rationality of faith and science. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to, to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. 
All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and histories and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has sent a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray as we move into God's word together. Heavenly Father, in this time that we've set aside to seek you, we ask that you would lead our thoughts, that your spirit would be guiding us, that you would be bringing us closer to yourself, that we can know you. That you would meet us in the honest and real questions that we can move forward. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul finds himself in the city of Athens. And at this point in history, it's no longer a political powerhouse because of the Roman Empire, but it is still the center of learning for the Roman world. It's the center of thoughts, of ideas, of philosophy, of science, of knowledge. And what we get in this passage is an example of how Paul engaged with the world that didn't believe and think the way he did, and I think an example of how we can engage the world that we live in and the questions, these honest questions that we bring to faith. And so, how does Paul engage these people and their questions? Does he just ask them to check their minds at the door and believe? No. And yet, why is this how the church has acted it's happened throughout history. When I was in Pittsburgh, I, I knew a young man in his 20s, and he had been heavily involved in the church that I was at prior to my arrival. But somewhere along the line, he just disappeared. And I finally got to have coffee with him one day, and he told me what had happened. He said, I loved being a part of the church. I was having everything as a kid growing up, and even going into the youth group as a teenager. But the thing is, I had so many questions. And, I, and when I had a question, I would just raise it. But every time I would ask difficult questions, I was told to just trust and believe that God was going to work things out. That I shouldn't ask questions like that. I should just believe. But I couldn't accept that answer. I just kept asking the questions until one day I was finally asked to not come back. And it broke my heart. 
that his questions weren't accepted, weren't welcomed. They were seen as a disruption rather than an opportunity to lean further in and explore what has God told us, shown us, how can we, is it possible to ground faith on a rational and logical line of thinking? And so Paul doesn't just tell them to believe. No, he, in verse 17, it tells us he reasoned with them. He used reason. He crafted arguments that he laid out in an order that made sense to the hearer so that the hearer could evaluate the validity or veracity of his argument. It's not just a proposition and then say, believe it. It was a reasoned argument. In verse 18, we're told he debated. He debated in the synagogue. He debated in the marketplace. He debated Epicurean philosophers who thought that their chief aim in life was pleasure, seek maximum pleasure, reduce, eliminate pain. He debated with the Stoic philosophers who pursued a whole way of being that was trying to disconnect themselves from all passions, from the emotions of highs and lows, from grief and joy. They had this detached way of living where they had simply to submit to the natural law of things as if it's the divine will. And man, I was thinking about this reality, and we have lots of Epicureans today. We think of them as just foodies. But it comes from this place of seeking maximum pleasure and just trying to avoid pain. You know anybody like that? And and then we've got these Stoics. And and to me, it sounded a lot like the new atheist movement, which actually rose up in the post-9-11 world where people were trying to grapple with the reality of what had happened. And these new atheists rose up and, and they were arguing against the belief in God at this point. And that the natural order of things is adequate. Though they wouldn't have just said, accept it because it's the divine will. They would have said, accept it because it's a part of the natural order of things, the natural order and law. And so Paul is interacting with these Epicureans and these Stoics. He's debating them all. And some were told didn't get it. They were wondering, what is this babbler talking about? He seems to be advocating for foreign gods they didn't really understand. And so what happened next? How did Paul respond to their lack of understanding? Oh, you didn't get it. Get out of here. No. He was invited to go to the Areopagus, which was this limestone hill where really the heavy hitters of intellectual thinking would gather together to discuss all of the latest ideas of the day. And Paul was invited, and instead of rejecting them, he accepted the invitation. He respected them enough to come. And we're we're told that they wanted to know. He was invited to reason with them. We want to know this new teaching. We don't get it. There's some really strange ideas that you're putting out there. But will you help us understand? And instead of Paul saying, just believe, he chooses to reason with them in a number of different ways. He begins by not tearing down their entire worldview, their entire understanding of things. As a matter of fact, he starts very clearly with where they are and then builds a bridge of logical argument, rational thought from where they are to where Paul is hoping to show them. And so he talks about, hey, I've I've been wandering around town and I've seen all of these gods, these statues of all these gods that you worship. And then I ran into this other one that had this weird inscription. It said, the unknown God. And I want to tell you, I know you have ignorance about the very thing that you believe. There's mystery left, isn't there? You don't actually understand it all. Sounds a little bit like the world we live in. And so I want to help you understand a little bit about this God. And so he appeals to the reality of the God who made heaven and earth, and he tells them, a God who made heaven and earth doesn't live in houses and temples built with human hands. 
I mean, if he's that big to have created, made all of these things, then it doesn't make sense that he would live in a temple that you built with your hands. See, he's using logical thinking, rational argument. And if he's that big, why does it make sense in our day that this God who created all things could live within the houses of our own intellectual making? Perhaps God who made all things doesn't fit in our neat little boxes and limitations that we would put him in. And Paul goes on from there and he says, if he's that big, then he has given us all life and breath and everything from one man. He made all of the nations on all of the earth. He's been guiding all of history, setting the boundaries on what the nations would own and how it would all work out. In other words, Paul is arguing that God is at work through it all. He's saying that, look at history. Some of it makes sense, is easy to explain and understand. Some of it we don't understand at all. And yet God has been guiding it all with the purpose that humans will seek him and find him. Paul is arguing that, hey, your knowledge base that you have, your understanding of history, helps point you to God. It doesn't take you away from him. Your understanding of the way the world works is to take you toward God. The things that move you to awe and wonder, the beauty that you see around you, isn't an argument against, it's an argument toward God. So he's saying, look at what you know, what you don't know, your questions, your thoughts, your conclusions. They're all an invitation to move toward this God, to seek him, and when you do, you'll find him. I'm going to say that in our day, there's lots of knowledge. He was starting with what they knew, not what he wanted them to know and wanted them to believe. There's lots of knowledge that is available in our world that comes from outside the Bible. And unfortunately, sometimes Christians vilify all of that knowledge, They vilify scientists. They vilify people who are learning things, who are knowing things, but it didn't come directly from Scripture. And I think Paul would totally reject that way of being because he's starting with what they do know, with what's been revealed, with the understanding of the world around them. And he's saying, all of this knowledge that you know points you to God. It doesn't take you away from God. And so Christians don't have to turn a blind eye when science seems to raise something that they don't fully understand or that it's hard to reconcile with what they think the scripture would say. Because Paul's saying all science, all history, all philosophy, all knowledge is intended to move us toward God, to seek him. In other words, don't leave your mind behind. Use your thoughts. Paul even quotes one of their own philosophers when he says in him, we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. He was saying to them, hey, your poets, your philosophers, your most knowledgeable people, They know this, and it's true. See, Paul's connecting with what they have discovered and know and using it as a bridge to help them know the God that's behind that truth. And I'll tell you that science can be that bridge. As he's laying out this argument, he comes to this point where he says, therefore, therefore, since we are his offspring. In other words, Paul is, again, continuing in a logical, sequential argument. If this is all true, then this is true. If all of this, therefore, this must be true as well. So if you've been tracking me so far, hang with me because these are the logical conclusions and outcomes that come from this line of thinking. And Paul then moves from if this is true, then here's what I hope you'll understand. That I want you to repent. I want you to change direction from this way of living that is in your ignorance of God towards God toward lives that are enriched and ultimately can be saved through Jesus Christ, the man who he he says 
will justly judge the world. And so he's laid out this argument. He's made his therefore what he hopes that they'll come to understand. But then Paul does one last thing. He challenges, I think, directly the idea that faith and Christianity are irrational. Because in conclusion to his entire argument, he offers evidence. He doesn't just say believe. In verse 31, he tells them, hey, God has offered you proof, proof that he will justly judge the world through Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead. Now, you might be asking, so how is this proof? You're just now asking me just to believe now in in resurrection? I mean, that's crazy. Well, it's not that crazy because Paul is, is making this declaration right here at a time not very far removed from the time when Jesus was raised from the dead. And so it's proof because he's inviting them to go and investigate it. He's saying, there are people alive who were there. They saw the risen Jesus. Go and explore. Go and find out what happened. Make a decision for yourself on the proof that there has been the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that is, if that is true, that is a rational place to put your faith. It's proof. Yeah, but, I mean, how can resurrection from the dead be proof? I mean, we may be thinking that even today. How can that be proof? And I think the reality is it can be proof because in other realms of life, we actually make the same conclusions that we receive as true proof of things that we haven't actually seen. Even in science, we're willing to stake our lives in science on the confidence of the kind of evidence and proof Paul is talking about. And here's what I mean. What's the smallest piece of matter? Anybody know what the smallest piece of matter is that we we understand? It's a quark. Q-U-A-R-K. A quark. And I I don't have time to go into an entire quantum physics lesson, but I would encourage you to just go, I mean, quarks are amazing. Just go check out all of the amazing things about quarks. But here's why it matters. Because we used to think that protons and electrons were the most fundamental pieces of matter in the universe. And what has been determined and discovered is that actually protons are made up of at least three different quarks and probably a whole lot more. But three that are the fundamental valence quarks. And then, then, okay, but how do we know that? Because here's the thing, we've never seen a quark. We've never seen it. We've seen the evidence of quarks. We've been able to observe the existence of quarks, but we can only observe them by implication. We cannot directly see them. And, we, and we, it's happened actually through those in, the Hadron Collider, you know, the incredible particle colliders. I mean, th- amazing. If you don't know about that, go check that out too. That's just another amazing thing to explore. Because they take these elements and they collide them together at incredible rates of speed, immense amounts of energy, and then they observe what happens when they slam into one another. And so what they found out was that, man, quarks are actually the smallest building blocks of matter. And there's so many amazing things about quarks that actually at times, under the right circumstances, with the right energy, quarks can appear and disappear, come into and out of being. Wait a second, that doesn't sound very scientific. And yet it is, beautifully, through E equals MC squared. But all of science has had to infer the reality of quarks based on the evidence of what has happened, on what they can observe. 
That's the, this whole realm of thinking in science is based on the kind of evidence and proof that Paul is suggesting for a faith in God. So how do we ask the, if the resurrection is real? What's the evidence? Well, at that time, Paul was saying, go talk to the people who've experienced it and see what they know. But I also think he would say, hey, look, look at the evidence of, for the resurrection. Because there's little argument, even among historians today, that Jesus was, in fact, alive. He was, in fact, crucified. He did die and was buried. Some will argue that detail, but most actually agree that he was dead and buried. There is also universal agreement that the body went missing. And so what happened? There's lots of possible explanations. But if we look at just even one piece of the evidence for today, just to tease out the thought that maybe there is evidence here that's worth rationally thinking about, just look at the lives of the disciples of Jesus and what happened. Because we know that when when Jesus was crucified, the disciples scattered. His closest followers were terrified. They went into hiding in all sorts of different places, afraid that they were going to be next. But then something happened. Resurrection? Did they encounter the risen Jesus? Because what we see from the evidence is their lives completely turned over. They went from fearful, in hiding, timid, to becoming incredibly bold in the face of Jewish and Roman persecution to the point that they were willing to testify to the, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the face of martyrdom, in the face of persecution that they were willing to die and to forgive those who were terrorizing them. Something changed. But why? That more and more even came to faith after these had been martyred. And if you keep looking for the evidence to see, man, you see lives that are transformed, a people who suddenly, in the midst of this Roman Empire, are are scooping up unwanted children and babies and claiming them and nurturing them as their own, caring for widows and orphans and the marginalized and the outcast, doing remarkable and incredible things amidst the terrorism, moving into places of plague, of disease, to care for those who aren't their fellow believers, but for those who God loves. What happened? See, there's evidence. There's other evidence for the resurrection. I just don't have time to keep going into all of it today. But Paul is saying to the people then and to us now, base your faith on logical, rational thinking. Seek out the proof. Here's the thing. Some believed and others didn't. At the end of the day. But I wonder if those who didn't believe if it was based on the evidence or if it was based on their preconceived notions and assumptions of what was possible. See, because Paul is laying out this case and they're listening intently, they're following along, and then he gets to the proof and he says, the proof is the resurrection of the dead, and we're told it was the resurrection claim that caused some people to just lose it. They were tracking the whole way, but now this claim of resurrection, oh, resurrection is impossible, the whole thing's throw it out the window. How do they know? I know it's not the normal order of things. Resurrection doesn't happen every day. But how do they know it didn't happen? If they haven't sought out the proof, the evidence. See, they came in with a preconceived notion that it wasn't possible. And so, therefore, they threw out all of the other argumentation. And I just wonder if those who are basing a worldview, a life, on this idea of rational science alone, is it based on where the evidence takes us? An honest seeking 
Or is it based on preconceived notions and assumptions and by the way, people of faith, I'm gonna push on you in the same kind of way. Is it based on preconceived notions and assumptions or is it based on the evidence that God has revealed to you? Because Paul is saying, here's the evidence. And, And there's some incredible people following the evidence. Dr. Hugh Ross is just one of them that I'll, I'll briefly mention to you kind of as we get to the end here. And, and he comes from a completely scientific background. He's an astrophysicist and so many other things. I mean, he's brilliant, way beyond me. I've tried to read him, I've tried to listen to him, and it takes a lot of effort because he's that smart. And he started this organization called reasons.org. I'm gonna encourage everybody to go check out reasons.org. Because for him, it was science that led him to faith in God through Jesus Christ. Science led him to faith because he looked at the Bible, at the biblical narrative, at the aspects and the accounts of cosmology, in other words, the origins of the earth and life, where it came from. And what he saw in the Bible compared to every other text and philosophy that he was exploring was he saw in Genesis 1 the, the accurate conditions and sequence of events that explain that align completely and explain the origins of life with the current scientific knowledge in the late 20th century. And he couldn't understand how it was possible that the ancients could understand how life had evolved scientifically unless they had been inspired by somebody who knew, the one who had done it, who had made it. And so he came to this place of going, man, God must have revealed this because it's so accurate. It fit his understanding of science. It led him to faith. Reasons.org, go check it out. He was seeing in Genesis 1, he saw a picture of how, scientifically, God had created the earth. But it's also, in addition to that, Genesis 1 gives us answers to questions that science is not actually equipped to answer. Because science is great at answering how, describing the way the world works, but it can't always answer the why questions. Like the fundamental question, why is there life in the first place? And, and at some point, everyone should ask that question. Why is there life and not not life? In a book, Confronting Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin, the author, cites uh, Robert Jastrow, who's a NASA scientist in 1978. He, he reflects on the, what she calls the disqui- disquieting discovery that the universe had a beginning, which is part of what he, Dr. Ross saw. It aligned that there was a big bang. It happened. There was a time before time, and then there was a time when things were. And Robert Jastrow says this, for the scientist who has lived by, by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Because he knows that science can't answer the why. Eventually, there's a question that has to be answered in the, and theology, faith, can give us the answers to the why. Why is there life in the first place? But it's, a, it's an answer that's not disconnected from logic, from science, from reason. You can follow the science and it can take you, as he said in this, you can scale the mountains of ignorance. You can in, in, indulge in the incredible scientific discoveries which are magnificent. And it doesn't have to lead you away from faith. It can actually lead you toward God, toward a worship of a God who's even greater than you understood previously. This is Psalm 8. Thousands of years ago, and I consider the works of your hands, the moon and the stars, human, human life, animal existence. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. This is scientific inquiry. 
rational thinking, moving toward worship of a God who could do all these things. Worship is a natural outflow. It's the rational response to the discovery. As we conclude today, faith, people of faith, you do not need to be afraid of logic, of reason, and of science. It can lead you toward worship of this God of the heaven and earth. And people of science, you do not need to be afraid of faith because it is not necessary for it to be irrational, disconnected from the thoughts of your mind, the logical sequence of thinking, or your scientific knowledge and understanding. But for all of us, for all of us, is it grounded on the evidence, the rational use of our minds, or is it on our own assumptions and preconceived notions I invite you to follow the evidence. May, this be, may we be a community that welcomes these honest questions, this honest inquiry, the discussion and the explorations because faith and science do not need to be at odds with one another. And neither do we as we explore these honest questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you have revealed of yourself, the miracles of creation, your power, your wonder. Lord God, I thank you for the scientists that invest themselves so deeply in the exploration of this world and beyond. Lord God, thank you for the knowledge that they have discovered. Thank you for the advancements that that's led to for life. Thank you for for how it has moved us into places of wonder and awe. Lord, may you continue to work among us, leading us, that we can love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.